Right. Well, let's begin by reading James chapter 3. We'll look at verses 1 through 12. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths, that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives? Or a grapevine bear figs. Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. All right, so the passage before us, um, as you can see, concerns the tongue. The tongue being a metonymy, a figure of speech for our speech. One of the things that I want, I think that we'll see develop here, is that the tongue uh, refers, of course, in the obvious sense, to the, the physical member, the physical part of our body from which our speech comes. But the tongue actually um, is not only a bodily part. Um, there is something in us, in our um, heart, as it were, in our inner person that is attached to our tongue. Um, what I mean by that is Jesus says, out of the heart the mouth speaks. And so the tongue is an instrument of the heart, right? And when James talks about the tongue, sometimes he's referring to that part of the man that um, forms his speech, right? His attitudes, his thoughts, his desires, that kind of thing. And one of the useful things about the tongue is that it discovers or shows forth the inner man, right? How do we know what is in a man? Well, one of the ways is by what he says. This is a little bit of an interesting contrast to what James said earlier about the, the emptiness of mere words, right? So, merely saying something doesn't accomplish anything. On the other hand, what we say can, in fact, um, give an indication of our spiritual health. Alright, so uh, we're going to look at it in um, five short sections. First of all, the importance of the tongue in verses uh, 1 and 2. Uh, verse 1 begins with a prohibition. Not many should be teachers. Now, um, there's two ways to take this, and I don't think they exclude one another. The first is, um, 
teachers in the official sense, formal teachers like James was. Not many of us in the church ought to be teachers. There are only so many teachers required for a given church. But I think there's also an informal sense. In other words, uh, we mustn't always think that we are the teachers of everyone else, right? This is a little bit like Jesus' warning about removing the the plank from our own eye before we go to get the speck in someone else's. What are we doing in that instance? Well, we are being the teacher, right? We are the one with the information, with the knowledge, with the true judgment. And so I think James is both cautioning against people seeking to become teachers in the formal sense and the attitude that sets ourselves as always the teacher, right? We are always the one who is telling other people what to do. Now, this, the prohibition here serves as a warning. Um, and the reason he gives is that teachers, we, he says, he's including himself in that, will receive stricter judgment. Um, this is something just to <laughs> settle on for a minute. Those who purport to teach in Christ's name will receive a stricter judgment. Uh, sometimes Christians um, struggle with the fact that God has differing um, expectations for different people. Jesus said, though, that to whom much is given, much is required. Anyone who is in a position of any kind of responsibility or authority always will be held to a stricter standard. We see this throughout Scripture, like with the priests or the prophets, or you think of Moses, or you think of David. Look at how strictly God dealt with David. Why? Because David was in an exalted position, right? Um, he had responsibility. He ought to have known better. He had great blessings. He was given much favor. He was given all kinds of things. Therefore, when he stumbled, many other people suffered with him, and he greatly transgressed his agreement with God. So too with teachers. Um, Jesus taught that teachers would be judged more strictly, and he was hardest, oftentimes, on the teachers of his age. Now think of it, um, James considers himself a teacher. He says, we, right? So he considers himself to be a teacher. There's nothing wrong with being a teacher. Jesus was a teacher. There's nothing wrong with it. But both James and Jesus have hard words for teachers because, again, of the responsibility. Now, what is the reason? They'll be judged more strictly. Um, now, Jesus, um, well, well, we'll skip that for now, but I want to see the connection here between teaching and then the rest of this section on the tongue. Um, and I think the most obvious connection is that those who teach often do so using the tongue, right? It's a natural connection between a teacher and speaking. The assumption that teachers are required to speak and especially in danger of sinning by their speech. Um, but there's another thing, and what we'll see here with the tongue is that it is indicative of a man's discipline of his whole body. Okay? So the tongue of all the body is the most difficult to tame. And if a man tames his tongue... It's an indication he has the rest of himself under discipline, under control. And that's important for teachers, right? That they have themselves disciplined so that they are not an occasion 
of temptation and sin for others, for the rest of the body. So teachers not only speak more, and remember James says that we should be quick to hear and slow to speak. That's a basic truth for everyone. Teachers have to speak, right? So already you're entering into a danger zone, right? I'm supposed to be quick to hear, slow to speak. Okay, now get up and talk for 45 minutes, Uh right? Oh, and and a couple times a week or several times a week, um, you know, day in and day out in people's houses and in the church. And Okay, you see the inherent danger then. And that's what I think James wants us to be cautious of. Now, James admits that even himself included, we all stumble in many things. Um, Teachers don't need to be perfect men, but a man who can bridle his tongue is a perfect man. Remember uh, back in chapter 1, verse 4, James talked about um, being patient, enduring with patience, and considering all joy when we face many trials, right? And we are, we are wanting to become perfect men, become complete. Let me just read this here. Let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So, James is saying in that instance, okay, when we suffer trials, we're supposed to let patience endurance develop within us so that God can supply us with what we're lacking. He can complete us. We're becoming complete. Remember, perfection here refers to um, bringing to fulfillment, bringing to completion. And as it is, we oftentimes are lacking perfection, right? We're lacking completeness. completeness. We lack the graces or the virtues that would make us complete. Now, James is saying then a a man who can perf- who can bridle his tongue is a perfect man. There isn't, accepting Christ, there isn't such a man, right? That's not, that's not um, true existentially right now for any man. Because James just got done saying, we all stumble in many things. He's including himself. So even James, the apostle, is not the perfect man. But his point is that the tongue is the last battle for man. When he bridles that, he has achieved that completion. All right, so the tongue is the most difficult of all of man's members to master. Now, there may also be here an implied comparison between the individual man and his body. Right, so you have an individual man, and he has to bridle his tongue because his tongue has influence over his whole body. Now, we take that into the metaphorical description of the church, of individual members and the body. Some of those members of the body are the organs of speech, the church's teachers. And look at the tremendous influence that they have on the whole body, right? So, um, that is another reason why not many should be teachers, because they should be those who have success in bridling their tongue. Uh, we won't look... Yeah, hang on one second, Mr. Okay. Mauro. I'll come right to you. Just so you... We won't look at these, but I just want you to see that a lot of what James says about the tongue is uh, throughout the scriptures, but particularly in the book of Proverbs. I have them listed here, but 
um, just to see the way that Proverbs discusses the use of the tongue. And you will see that James um, uh, alludes to or quotes several of those things. All right, Mr. Maurer. Yes, um, and yet the office of teacher is kind of like a double-edged sword because the author of Hebrews indicts uh, the people of his day saying that uh, by now you should have become teachers. You, you should ought be to, teachers. Yeah, you ought to be teachers, but yeah. as it is. Yeah. yeah. And, and Paul said, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Yeah. So we would be sinning um, you know, if God has given us a gift of teaching and we don't use it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yet, uh, you know, we had to be very careful. Yes. Uh, so one, of, yeah, and you bring up a good point, Don. So you think of the, the qualification to be a teacher in the church. And um, we tend to think of it as intellectual abilities or rhetorical skills, um, those kinds of things. But those are really not primarily what are required. Um, most of the qualifications for teachers in the church are character. They're moral qualifications. They are submission to Jesus Christ. And then the, the skill in speech has to do with accurately understanding and conveying the message of the Bible, right? That's really the, the teacher's um, task. But oftentimes, the qualification for the teacher, you know, we don't read, for instance, about, you know, requirement to be eloquent in speech or um, even well-educated. Although those things are, we understand the necessity and importance of those things, right? But primarily, Scripture wants um, men of character. Yes, go ahead, Joe. Kind of like going off what you're saying, do you think you can almost use like leader synonymously in this position? Because I think yeah. there's a lot of parallels, or not all. The yeah, same yeah, there. yeah. So a teacher is, in a sense, a leader, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that is, um, yes, uh, I think that's a, a strong parallel. Those who who lead or rule or exercise authority, um, there are, we'll call it their character qualifications on the one hand. And then the skills, on the other hand. Um, and both of those need to be developed. But the things that primarily disqualify men are not particular skills, but rather character defects. Okay, um, you, you could have, um, there probably are thousands of faithful pastors around this country who have the character and the disciplines and the spiritual strength and yet are not ideally um, suited in academics or rhetoric or things like that. Now, those things should be a part of it, but again, that's not typically what disqualifies men, right? Think of um, when you have scandals of, of leadership in a church or, or anything. It's usually not, well, he stutters, or he's got a lisp, or, you know, it's usually, uh, well, he slept with his secretary, or he was caught lying, or um, in other words, the, the the major issue is his moral character, right? And I think it's sometimes easier to um, improve skills than it is to improve character, right? Because improving character means suffering, it means disciplining, it means repenting, it means right. These are daily things that they have to do versus just. Um, shoring up on skills. 
And this is if you ever find yourself, for instance, on a search committee for a pastor, some of you maybe will do that at some point in your lives. Um, consider the moral and spiritual qualifications of the candidates, right? Those are the things, those are the, the intangibles, the non-negotiable things that are very important. Um, seminaries do not make ministers, right? They can take men whom God is calling to ministry and help qualify them, help prepare them, give them certain skills and training and things like that. But an education cannot make a man qualified for ministry. And I think I've seen that's a mistake that a lot of men make. Um, and this, I'm getting way uh, in the woods here, but let me just say this. I, I think that this is one of the uh, weaknesses of the current um, church in the world is that the job of teacher or pastor became principally an academic job. Mm. Okay? Not a... And I want you to cons consider the difference between a bookworm and a shepherd. Okay? A shepherd is a guy who carries a stick. He's a guy who sleeps outside. He's a guy who fights wolves. He's a guy with dirt under his fingernails. Right? Versus a bookworm. He's a guy who hides in the library because he can't interact with people. He's a guy who um, likes to deal with theoretical knowledge. And he may be very well um, read in that respect, but he's not suitable as a teacher in the church. Mr. Kaufman. I think you also see, Benjamin's going the other direction too, yeah. where, and I think, I think it possibly with, with good intention, people in the, in, in the modern church saw what you meant as far as the academic side, Yeah. yeah. but then swung the complete other way. And if a person's eloquent, or they speak well, uh, and they have, you know, more of that emotional or charismatic perspective, or that engaging, uh -huh. love your neighbor perspective, mm -hmm. in, in one sense, that becomes what's viewed as as what qualifies yeah. you, yeah. and not so much understanding what the scripture says. Which, yeah. and so in other words, yeah. it's the, the the balance between. And yep. you, you see that pendulum, the, the two extremes. You remember Aristotle's rhetoric, and there's the ethos and the logos and the pathos, right? You have those, you know, you've probably seen the triangle, and, uh, and Cicero talked about this as well, but you have um, the ethical qualifications of the speaker, you have the logical argumentation of the speaker, and then you have the emotional or... Um, passion of the speaker, right? And ideally, all three of those things are present, but we tend to gravitate towards one of the three or two of the three, right? So what you're describing is someone who has pathos. He engenders the sympathy, and he can speak in such a way that excites the audience and, and, and moves them emotionally. Okay, uh, music is notorious for this, right? Sure. It moves us emotionally, and, and that's the goal of a, of a teacher, isn't it? To persuade, to move. All right, but then there are others. Um, you, you, you persuade logically. It's reasonable, it's clear, it's crisp, it, it, it makes sense. Um, and then, of course, you have the ethical. Well, why would I listen to this guy? He's telling me about marriage, but he's got four divorces, right? So there has to be an ethical component. And I think that that's just a, a, a what I'll call um, law of nature that um, applies to even Bible teachers, that you should have those aspects, and none of them can be 
be disregarded. All right, uh, verses 3 through 5 then. Um, so you see that, just to make sure I've set this, is that the connection between teacher and tongue principally has to do with, one, teachers have to use their tongues, therefore they're in peril. Two, the tongue itself is a, uh, a barometer, an indication of how a man is doing bridling himself, okay? How he's doing in terms of his um, character. Uh, verses 3 through 5 then illustrate the power of the tongue. And it does this primarily uh, by these illustrations. You've got a bit in a horse's mouth, a rudder on a ship, and a spark to a fire. All of these, like the tongue, are very small, but they're used to great effect, right? That's the, that's the comparison. Um, and it's really interesting, like you think of a horse, how you, a horse, I don't know, what does a horse weigh, a thousand pounds maybe or more? And uh, a man can steer a horse where he wants it to go by means of a uh, bridle and a bit in the horse's mouth. Um, same with a rudder on a ship. And then a tiny little spark, and he, James will pick up this illustration again with a slightly different point, but here now the point is, is just how small a thing can have such a great influence, and that's the tongue. Uh, if you notice that the rudder and the bit and the tongue, they're all something that are guided by human desires, right? So you think of the bit in the horse's mouth, it is a man steering the horse. You think of the rudder on a ship, James even references the pilot or the captain. Right, or we could put it in terms of nowadays, the steering wheel in a car, right? There's a human agent steering. And the same with the tongue. Um, so in other words, all of these instances James wants us to see, and this is that internal connection I was talking about. The tongue has a driver, right? He has a pilot. It has someone pulling the reins. Who is that? Well, that's me, right? That's, that's you. That's the inner man. And so, um, if the tongue is not bridled, or if the tongue is being steered in a certain direction, that's coming from the pilot, the, the driver, the rider. All right? Um, and it brings about, of course, a result. You can steer a whole ship, or steer a horse, or, um, you know, set the world on fire with your tongue, as James talks about. All right, then there's a forest fire. Right, a little spark starts a whole fire. And this begins illustrating the disastrous, and I think here oftentimes unintended consequences of our words, right? Um, there, there are large consequences and undesirable consequences from a very small incident. And that, I mean, um, you don't have to um, be a teacher to understand this, how our words... Um, though very small, can have terrible, terrible consequences. Um, so then in verse 6, James continues this comparison of the tongue to fire. Several places in the Old Testament, in Psalms, Proverbs, and Isaiah, the tongue is likened to fire or to a flame. Um, here the point of the comparison focuses more on the destructiveness of the tongue than just its size. So first he started out it's little and has big effects. Now he's talking about fire in the destructive sense. It's described as a world of iniquity, which refers, I think, to the, the quantity and the diversity of evil 
inherent or contained in the tongue, right? So it's, there's a whole world worth of bad things in that tongue. John Kelvin said this, a, a slender portion of flesh contains the whole world of iniquity. That's, you know, it's kind of a, I don't know, like maybe a snow globe, right? And you, if you could, you know, you have a scene in that snow globe, and if the things inside of there um, really corresponded, right? If they were, if you could actually fit the whole town or the whole world inside of this little globe, and that would be a lot packed in there, right? You've got different people and, and scenes and all of these different things packed in there, and the tongue is like that where you have a whole world's worth of stuff packed into a little, little member. Yeah, Mr. Mauer. Yeah, uh, and very interesting to me. I think that, you know, the, the tongue, like you said a couple minutes ago, is really a barometer, a mm. spiritual barometer. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I, you know, I mean, if I meet a person that is, uh, you know, using the Lord's name in vain constantly uh, and saying other things, I can pretty well conclude that he's probably most yeah. likely not a believer. Yeah. Because one of the things that happens um, to a lot of people is that their language is cleaned up. Yes. You know, yeah. uh, to a considerable yeah. extent. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, okay. So, something worth noting here is that there's a sense in which um, our words alone cannot qualify us, right? Because, in other words, if you have um, a kind of faith that just says, well, we'll go and be warm and be filled but you don't actually do anything, those words can't actually qualify you. But words alone can disqualify you, which is what Don just talked about. If you're blasphemous in your speech, right? Well, that immediately shows there's something, your claim to faith would be, would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? Um, so your words alone cannot give you safety, but they can certainly bring you to danger, okay? Alrighty, um, let's see. In Ecclesiastes uh, five six, Solomon says that um, don't let your tongue bring your whole body into sin. That's and that, that's an interesting thing is that the little tongue can bring the whole body into into sin. It occupies, according to James, a place that allows it to defile and set on fire the whole body. And this is where I, okay. So when you talk about the tongue being a barometer. Um, the way that I, I read this in verse 6 is that God has placed the tongue there for that purpose. Okay, um, James says in the second part of verse 6, The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. This, the word set is appointed, placed. God placed the tongue in man where it is. Right? God gave us a... I mean, think of even compared to animals. We have an endowment that they do not, the gift of speech. God gave that to us, and it's placed there. Uh, but because of where it's placed, it has the possibility of defiling the whole person. Okay, So the tongue has a, a, a high um, place. It's in a chair um, seated high in the human uh, character. Um, now, the tongue itself sets things on fire, but, but James is also saying that it is on fire with the fires from hell. You see that at, at the end of verse 6. Um, and it is set on fire by hell. It's uh, literally um, the fire of hell. 
So it's almost like the, the tongue itself caught fire from hell, and now it's everything it touches it's setting on fire with that hell fire. Now, one other um, interesting thing with this is that um, only James and Christ use this word for hell in the New Testament. Um, Jesus uses it 11 times in the Gospels, and James uses it once here, and that's it. So James's word for hell is, is exclusive to Jesus and James. Once again, I think indicating um, that James very much paid attention to the teaching of Jesus. Um, but the picture is, you know, the, with the tongue, um, the man lapped from the, the fires of hell, and now everything his tongue touches is caught on fire, and he's spreading that fire throughout. All right, verses 7 and 8 illustrate the difficulty then of taming the tongue. So we see the danger of the tongue. It sets things on fire, fire being destructive, um, and of course uh, pertaining to hell. And now the difficulty of taming this tongue. Men tame all kinds of animals, but they cannot tame their tongue. This contrast is heightened by the word order and the strong negation. So literally, um, like... First, let me read it in our translation. Um, but no man can tame the tongue. Um, but literally more like, but the tongue, no one is able of men to tame. So in Greek, they moved the word tongue, uh, James moved the word tongue to the beginning of the sentence. Um, and because uh, of the way that the Greek language works, you can switch around the word order and not change what is the subject of the sentence. Typically in English, we put the subject at the beginning of the sentence, right? Well, in Greek, oftentimes the subject is, lies later in the sentence. And you know that because of its case. It matches the verb, okay? Here, James intentionally moved the word tongue to the beginning of the sentence to heighten the contrast. The tongue, no one is able of men to tame, right? We can tame all these animals, but the tongue... We can't tame. Yes, sir. <clears throat> Just a quick question, I guess. Is there a contrast to be made regarding the tongue and fire from what James is saying now, um, what Christ has said in the past, and what happens in the book of Acts? Okay, so that like they saw um, tongues of fire on the day of Pentecost. Um, that's a good question, and there. Are, okay, so that would be um, a similar metaphor but with a positive effect. So That's what, a, yeah, and, 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 okay, so there are things in the Old Testament, for example, is not my word like fire, says the Lord, right? Okay, so fire um, in Scripture has a, a, a number of uses, negative and positive. Negatively, it's destructive. Positively, it purifies, right? And so I think if there is a connection there, that would be what it is, that, that, um, the tongues of fire, indicative of the Holy Spirit, are um, purifying fire as opposed to destructive fire. Um, one coming from God and one coming from hell. Just saying is from us. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. So I think if there is a connection in there, it has to do with with um, fire um, being purifying versus fire being destructive. Amen. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so naturally speaking, by the way, if you look at the list, the way that James categorized his taxonomy of animals um, in verse 7, every kind of beast and bird and reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. Um, one, this is, corresponds to Genesis chapter 1. 
um, to taxonomy of animals. This is basically the way it's set up. Also in Acts chapter 11, um, Peter is um, shown various animals, right? Um, it's just kind of the Bible's way of dividing up animals on the earth. Um, but I want to think about, okay, so we, we marvel, for instance, at Solomon. Remember when we're reading of Solomon's glory, and he has all these zoos, right? He has all these animals. And it's sort of a, a picture of him having um, great uh, kingly rule in that he's, able, he's brought in and had these animals tamed. And to this day, we see people with varying degrees of success taming all kinds of animals, right? Um, part of that is, okay, man has God-given dominion over these creatures. Therefore, it makes sense that he can tame them and make use of them. But these animals are separate creatures from man. And we can tame them, but we can't tame our own tongue. That's the, you know, like, <laughs> it, it should be easier, naturally speaking, to tame our own body than to tame a completely different thing that's actually another species. And the dominion, one second, Mr. Eisenbaugh, I see you. Um, the dominion that man has over the creation implies a dominion he's supposed to have over himself, right? You don't, you don't get dominion over the rest of creation without first having dominion of yourself. So there's a really um, strong contrast here. Why is it that we can, we can make zoos or train dogs to fetch the paper, but we can't control our tongue? Yes, Ms. Heisenberg. What about prayer? Can prayer help, help you with your tongue? I think so. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So, so would prayer help? Yes, of course. Um, so there's two things. One is James is pointing out what is, right? And he hasn't yet got to what ought to be. In other words, the, the fact of the matter is um, mankind has difficulty taming his tongue. The ought to be will, well, we ought to tame our tongue. And then what you're discussing is how do we tame our tongue? All right, it's, one of the principal ways that we do is by prayer. Yes, Lord. It's more about taming your heart. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right. It's not, yes. Even if you're, yes. You know, you've tamed your tongue. Yes. If you're thinking it. Yes. Yes. You know, that's right, you can, and that's, okay, so when we discuss the tongue, here's, okay, think of um, inside of us, our desires, thoughts and desires and attitudes and inclinations, and those pass through our mind, and from our mind come out of our mouth, all right? We can first stop our mouth, that's probably the easiest of the process, okay? But then we have to find out what's behind the mouth. What is it that's compelling, right? That's in our mind. Mm -hmm. But then we get to, where, to our mind and we say, okay, well, what's, what's compelling my mind to have this attitude or this desire? Mm -hmm. That gets back to the corruption in our nature. And that is where really the, the battle for sin is at the end of the day, is mm -hmm. that corruptedness and the sin that dwells within us, right? That's where um, 
But we don't know about that sin <coughs> until A, it comes out of our mouth, or B, we shut our mouths, we don't say it, but yet we still think it or feel it, right? Now, don't mistake here, it is better not to say it, right? Like, suppose I have an ungodly thought. I, if I express it, I've just magnified the sin. If I don't say it, that's better, but there's still a problem there, isn't there? There's still something there. And so we want to get back behind or underneath those sins. And to Miss Eisenbaugh's point, prayer. Okay, When we are talking to God, um, part of that is we are training our tongue for godly speech. Right? That's how, that's how we train it. As opposed to, uh, think of the psalmists. When they have complaints, when they have concerns, they make them known to God. And when we make them known to God, that's not necessarily um, complaining or grumbling or anything else. That's praying. And it's very hard to legitimately pray and sin at the same time. right? Oftentimes prayer takes the place of, of worry and complaint and those kinds of things. Yeah. All right, let's see. We have... Uh, the danger of the tongue, um, the difficulty taming the tongue, all right? Um, and James continues then that the tongue is an unruly evil full of poison. And so you think he just got done talking about taming all these animals, and, and now you've got this unruly creature, right? Something that's very difficult to tame, and oh yeah, it's venomous or poisonous, right? It's, it's that makes it um, doubly difficult to tame. All right, now in verses uh, 9 through 12, I call this a painful discovery um, because it, James is showing us the absurd and contradictory way in which we use our tongues. He again includes himself among the guilty using the word we twice in verse 9. That's, that's an interesting thing, right? So this, I think, in one measure gives us some hope, right? that James, with humility, includes himself among those who are contradicting. Um, that's important, I think. That It's a realistic view of humanity. James was a godly man. James was a teacher. James was a genuine believer, right? All of these things, and yet James understood the difficulty of the tongue and the contradictory nature of how mankind uses it. And the contrast is between praising God on the one hand and cursing man on the other. And the problem with praising God but cursing man is this. Man is made in God's image. So if you curse man, how do you get away from the implication that you are in some way cursing God? Right? Because it's a connection between man, who's God's image, and God. So there's an inherent contradiction there. Um, cursing in this sense, I think, refers to evil speech and unlawful curses. And I, I think a, a good analogy is when Jesus forbids judging or forbids anger, right? When Jesus says, judge not, lest ye be judged, Matthew 7, 1. Does he mean that you may never in any circumstance make a judgment. That's what the world thinks. It right? Is. So, so, or when he says, uh, do not be angry. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Do not be angry. 
or when he says, um, whoever is anger, angry at his brother, right? Yeah, whoever is angry at his brother is guilty of murder. Does Jesus mean anytime you get upset that you're guilty of murder? No, he's talking about a specific kind of judgment and a specific kind of anger. And also, I think James here is talking about a specific kind of cursing. And the reason why I say that is we see examples in Scripture. Um, for example, Noah. Cursed be Canaan. Right? Was uh, Noah sinning when he prophesied the curse of Canaan? No. Um, we see Joshua um, cursing anyone who rebuilt Jericho. Was he sinning? No, he was, he was declaring a solemn truth that God has, has declared this city destroyed and anyone who goes contrary to God is bringing upon themselves judgment. We see um, Christ uh, in numerous places. Woe to you Pharisees, right? See, he's cursing them. He's not sinning, though. There, so the point that I want to make is that just... Um, and then I have several psalms in which there are curses against God's enemies. So not all um, maledictory speech, right? Not all speech that is negative is cursing in the sense that James is forbidding. What he is talking about is evil speech, things like slander, things like gossip, things like backbiting, things like um, lying against man, right? Those are the cursing that is not compatible with the praising of God. All right, so when you are, um, uh, let me give you one. In, okay, in church discipline, one of the, fi the final step in church discipline is excommunication. Right? You're taking someone and putting them outside the communion of the church. And when you do that, you are saying, as Jesus said, they are like a pagan or a tax collector. You are pronouncing upon them a judgment that they are not a Christian. As a non-Christian, what does that mean? They are subject to the curse of hell, right? Someone outside the church has not a savior, has not the means of grace. You are saying to them, unless you repent and come back, you are cursed. So the church in that sense is pronouncing a curse. Now, are they sinning in that regard? No, what they are doing is actually affirming what God has shown, okay? And they're doing it with what intention? With the intention of purifying the church and perhaps even saving that wayward sinner. So you see, there's a, a sense in which cursing can be evil or good. Okay, But James here is talking about that evil cursing, that cursing which is inherently evil. It's unlawful and unjust. Now James takes it for granted that cursing man in this sense is wrong, he says in verse 10, these things ought not to be so. The remainder of his argument then is intended to show this incongruity of blessing and cursing proceeding from the same source. Uh, the Apostle John talks about, you know, how can we love God whom we've not seen and hate our brother whom we have seen? I think this is very similar to what James is saying. Um, the, the image of God in man is what we see, right? Um, so we can't curse that man and bless God without a contradiction. All right? 
Now the first question then that James asks, does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? That's an obvious, no, they don't, right? That's just by observation of the natural world, we should know that, and, and James's audience would have absolutely understood that. It demands a negative answer, so it's a rhetorical question, right? But then it's more strongly enforced by the implied answer to a second question. So he answers his own question with a question. We, we kind of have this, though. Is the Pope Catholic? <laughs> right? Ah, uh, no. Right? <laughs> but, that's right. Is he? But we, we have that kind of uh, rhetorical question, right? Where the point of that is, why, yes, he is. That's supposed to be the answer, to, right? Um, or, are you hungry? Well, does a bear live in the woods? <laughs> see, me, see me bridle my tongue? Um, but the point of that, that question, the answer to that question is supposed to answer the previous question. That's what James does there. And he gives examples. By the way, don't miss the connections to Christ with fig trees, olives, oh, yeah, yeah. right? He, he's, Jesus yeah. used these illustrations. And again, James, I think, is following him. So both of those questions assume um, that by observing the natural order of creation, we should see the inherent contradiction. Uh, for created things to act contrary to God's design is a contradiction, right? I mean, do hammers fall upward? No. Um, right, we, we get that. Uh, there, ordinarily, it's an impossibility. Does water flow uphill? No. Right, but these are things that... Um, we, we would observe just in nature, and that should show us there's a problem. So the natural question then is, do worshipers of God curse the image of God? No. That, that's the obvious answer, right? Um, and it, so the question has been implicitly answered twice, and it's finally explicitly said, no spring yields both salt water and fresh so in the same way, no tongue ought to bless God and curse men. Christians cannot live with such a contradiction, right? We can't accept it. We can't settle there. And I think that's James's point. There is an inherent contradiction in us when we use our tongue to bless God and curse men. That's a problem. Um, so that's I think James, that brings us to James's point. We must work to bridle and tame our tongues, especially um, before we would assume the task of teaching others. That's the mm. connection to the beginning of the passage. But then this goes back to chapter 1, verse 26. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. See, James is giving us a test again and, and helping us to see. Now, I want to... Okay, so there is an inherent contradiction there, right? Between using our tongue to bless God and curse man. James earlier says that if anyone bridles his tongue, he's the... If anyone has perfect control of his tongue, he's the perfect man. Yet, he includes himself in that group when he says, we all stumble in many things. I don't want to leave with despair, right? Yet, I don't want to remove the sting of this and the importance of this, that we must, like, one, like James 1.26 says, 
bridle our tongues. We must tame them, right? We must see that contradiction as a problem. And we must then, okay, so what do you do, for instance, if you have um, a horse that doesn't go where you want it to go? Well, that's the way it is. There ain't no horses. No, you put a bridle on him and you steer him, right? What do you do with a dog that goes to the bathroom on the carpet? Uh, you need to tame him, right? You need to train him. Okay, what do we do with a tongue that disobeys God? We need to tame it. We need to work to tame it. And I think that's what James is seeking after here. All right? All right, let me close us with prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for um, the painful and um, scary, even, discovery of how our tongues contradict how, Lord, we ought to use them to praise you and to edify and bless our brothers. We ask, Lord, that you would forgive us, that you would give us strength and encouragement in the battle against our own tongues, that you would help us attain it, that they would not be restless evil, but that they would be a source of building up and edifying. Even as we think of the Lord Jesus, how in his words he never sinned, how no evil speech came from him, how he spoke quite often and quite strongly and to a number of different people in different circumstances and yet represented you rightly. He was able to correct and instruct, to build up, to edify, to do all these things and yet without sin. Lord, we ask that more and more you would bless our tongues in that way. Give us uh, victory over this. Help us, Lord, in Christ's name we pray. Amen.